Well, um, people that I used to go to church with, I've heard it all my life on songs like that. If that song doesn't light your fire, then your wood is wet. It's incredible. Hey, let's give our bands a big round of applause. That is, that is so good, such good music. Hey, um, school's out and uh, graduations are now passed and that means that summer is absolutely here in full force. Uh, if you are the parents of young children, you know that because school's over and it's a whole new thing uh, for the next couple of months. But it's that time of year typically for all of us when we start thinking about, hey, we need to get away, we need to go on vacation, we need to get a little break. And specifically, it's that time of year when we start thinking about getting near water. I mean, we just automatically start thinking about getting near water around May especially into June, and we start thinking about, hey, I need to go to the pool, or I need to buy a pool, or we need to build a pool. We just need a pool. We need to be near a pool. It's, it's June. Oh my goodness, it's June 3rd. We need a pool. We need to go there. And then some of us were thinking, hey, it's time. It's time of year. We got to go to the lake. And hey, you may be watching online right now from the lake. And I just want to say you shouldn't feel guilty for being there and us being here because we're not angry about you being there and us being here, nor are we jealous. But there you are, probably you know enough food for the grill later on, you got a cooler full of water and you're gonna, you're gonna be drinking that water later uh, because you know, you're, you're good church people and so you're just gonna have a great time this afternoon because it's that time of the year, hey, I gotta go to the lake. Uh, but more than anything else, this is the time of year where we start thinking about going to the beach. Uh, whether you know you may consider yourself a beach person or not, I'm sorry that you're not. Uh, you are in the minority, but I think that most people are beach people. There's something about salt water. Uh, I discovered some things in reading for this series back a few weeks ago, uh, just how inclined we are to salt water as human beings. Now, you may not find this fascinating at all, but I find this fascinating. So, so just pretend for just a moment. But you know, a lot of sociologists and a lot of psychologists and, and a lot of uh, doctors and psychiatrists and you know people really smart. They sit around and they think about this type of stuff and, and they speculate that the reason that we love salt water so much, just not water, but salt water so much is because of the composition of our bodies and, and we just have this natural draw to salt water. Uh, in studying for this, I came across some interesting things. We have around 300 plus million people now in, in this country and 40%, 40%, think about this, 40% of the 300 plus million that, that live in this country, they live in counties that connect to the coast. Line 40% because people people just want to be near the beach. You know, it's exclusive, it's expensive, and, and that's where most of the population of the United States resides. 40% of this country, uh, right around the coastlines. And then, if you extend it out globally, this is this is this is incredible. Globally, 80% of the world's population lives within 60 miles of the coast. 80% of the world's population lives within 60 miles of a coastline somewhere around the world. And so it just, again, we love the water, we love the beach. And, and it's that time of the year when we think about the beach. And of course, uh, the quintessential thing to do when you go to the beach at some point in your life is to build a sandcastle. I mean, that's just part of the rite of passage. That's what you do, probably more so as a child than you do as an adult. But hey, you may be one of those adults who love to go to the beach and build sandcastles. That's great, that's incredible, and, and hooray for you. Uh, but at some point in your life, I trust that you have either built a sandcastle or once upon a time you knew someone who built a sandcastle, but you're familiar with the term. I, I can remember the first time that, uh, one of the first times I went to the beach, I guess, I met a young, young boy by the name of Gabe, and he was about my age, and I guess I was probably six or seven, somewhere around there. Uh, I've got pictures of it somewhere. But I met Gabe, and we, we hang out on the beach all week long, and I can remember us building sandcastles and you know throwing football 
and all that kind of stuff. Uh, but it just seems to be something that when you're a child and you go to the beach, one of those things that you just have to do is to build a sandcastle. And then you become a parent perhaps, and if you have children, you know about this. If you take your children to the beach, part of the filter of knowing whether or not you're a good parent or not is whether you built some sandcastles with your children because you just feel guilty if you didn't, if you robbed your child of their you know, rite of passage for their opportunity to build their sandcastle. So as a parent, and we've been taking our kids since before they could walk to the beach, and, and you know, I, I've, I've found that I am a bit inclined uh, when it comes to sandcastles, perhaps you could call me gifted. Uh, I'm almost engineer-like, um, and, and so I, I have trained my children uh, how to build sandcastles. We took them to the beach last year, and this is, this is what Shepard and Grayson built. Are you laughing at my children? This is a whole new thing, right? I mean, I, I think there's, okay, so they didn't build it. You're right, I built it all by myself. And um, I'm even more offended that you laughed again. But, but it's just a sandcastle, I mean, that's impressive, that's incredible. That would be fun if you could do that, and I know you can't do it just like I can't, but if you could, that would be fun, that would be cool, that would be amazing. And, and for the little bitty four towers that most of us built growing up, you know, the four with the little miniature walls in between, that was great enough. You know, sandcastles are just incredible, but here's the thing. No matter how hard you work on a sandcastle, small or large, no matter how much time you give to it, no matter how much energy you put into it, no matter how high you scale the walls, and no matter how thick you build the walls, in the end, the tide will rise and the water and the waves will reclaim the sand and the beach will look as though there was nothing ever there. Because when it comes to sandcastles, here is the reality that we all know. Every sandcastle eventually collapses under the weight of its surroundings. That is the end story for every sandcastle that has been built by the sea. Sooner or later, the waves will come. Sooner or later, the wind will blow. Sooner or later, the tide will rise and the sandcastle will collapse under the weight of its surroundings. So today we kick off this series that we're gonna be talking about all summer called Sandcastles. And I'm really excited about it because over the next few weeks, we're gonna talk about common beliefs that people like you and people like me have. Common beliefs of things that we think are true, but the thing is, they're not true. We're gonna talk about things that you were told since childhood it was true but we're gonna find out perhaps that it wasn't true after all. Common beliefs, common ideas, common opinions, even things that we have chapter and verse for, things that we believe that are true that aren't actually true at all. And so we're gonna spend the rest of the summer talking about beliefs that we should not build our lives upon. And you say, well, why would we spend all summer talking about this because of three words? Beliefs are consequential. Let's all just say that out loud together. Beliefs are consequential. And the sooner we really believe that, the better off we will all be. Because there is a consequence to everything that we choose to believe or not to believe. Everything that you choose to believe about anything, everything we choose to believe has a consequence to it because beliefs are powerful. And they're like tentacles, they're like a root system. They infiltrate every aspect of our lives. Beliefs affect what we see, beliefs affect how we hear, 
Beliefs affect how we think, how we feel. I mean, the root system of belief, the influence of belief, it goes through every single part of your life. It affects the way you interact with people because you have beliefs about people. You have beliefs about specific people. Oh, I believe, you know, they're a good person. I don't believe they're a good person. I believe they're honest. I don't believe they're honest at all. I believe he's a jerk. I believe he's the greatest guy I've ever met. All of those beliefs begin to shape, influence, and predict your interactions with people. What you believe about certain subsets of people labeled by culture, labeled by society, labeled by government, labeled by politics, whatever it may be, the way that you believe about certain people will shape how you interact with them. It's, it's just a fact. That's how powerful beliefs are. It, it, will, it will affect how you manage your money. What you believe about debt, because you have a belief about debt, what you believe about debt, is that good, is it bad, can it be healthy, is it always unhealthy? What you believe about saving, what you believe about investing, what you believe about generosity, what you believe about tithing, what you believe about whatever related to money will determine ultimately what you do with your money. It will shape how you engage your career or you disengage from your career. What you believe about your job, what you believe about your contribution, what you believe about the difference you're making or the difference that you're not making, what you believe about that will affect your career. What you believe about marriage, what you believe about what it means to be a husband, what you believe about what it means to be a wife, that very much will influence what your marriage looks like and what your marriage feels like. It's belief-based. It's how we raise our children. It's what we believe about our sons. It's what we believe about our daughters. It's about what we believe about the future. It's what we believe about their faith. It's what we believe about our responsibilities as moms and dads, which begins to shape how we parent our children. Beliefs, they're foundational. It has everything to do with your health and my health to a large degree. We either exercise or not based on what we believe. People don't exercise because ultimately, Regardless of what they say, because beliefs are not what you say, beliefs are ultimately what you do. People may say, oh, I believe exercise is good, and, and I think we would call bull because they don't exercise. If we truly believe it made a difference, if we truly believe that getting healthy and eating right and working out and spending some time being active, if we actually thought it made a difference, we would do it because we love ourselves just that much. We care about ourselves. And so it, it has a lot to do with our health, our physical health, what we do, what we don't do. Beliefs are so very important. They're, they're everything. They're always in the background. They're always helping us make sense of the world around us and the world within us. So when we talk about beliefs and the fact they're consequential, in my opinion, I think that any discussion about beliefs need to begin with why do we have the beliefs that we have? Why do you have the beliefs that you have? And so we've said this before, but th this is really the best place to start this, this series today. And if you've never been here before, a series is like one big sermon, and this is just the introduction, and you'll have to come back in the weeks following to find out where, where all this goes. But here's the thing about beliefs. Beliefs are either inherited or adopted. And those are the one or two places, or maybe a little bit of both, of where you got what you believe today. For most people, they have inherited what they believe from other people. They've inherited what they believe from people they love and trust. Their parents, their grandparents, family members, you know, a beloved professor, a trusted friend. And once upon a time, like me, you were told what to believe. And you were told by someone that you loved and trusted that this was right and that was wrong. This was true and that wasn't. This is good and this is bad. 
And then somewhere along the way, you borrowed it. You said, okay, that sounds good to me. I love you. I trust you. So I'm going to take that and borrow it as my own. And then you just kind of went on and you haven't thought about it a whole lot since. And the rest of your life has been an undergirding of what you were told in the beginning of your life. And for most of us, we have surrounded ourselves for the remainder of our lives since then of people who told us that we are still right of what someone told us once upon a time. And so those beliefs just keep getting reinforced and reinforced and reinforced and reinforced. Now, here's the scary thing, right? And this goes from for me to you, this goes for me to my children, this goes for every single one of us. Just because we were told something by someone that we loved and trusted did not make them right. Now think about that. Just because we loved them and trusted them didn't make them right. It makes them loved and trusted, but it doesn't necessarily make them right. And so what I see a lot, you know, in the Christian world and in the church world, a lot of Christians as adults and, and non-Christians as well, they're far into adulthood misinformed by things they were told earlier in life, things that are very much consequential to the life that they're living today or mistakes they made in the past or mistakes they've yet to make in the future. But a lot of us were misinformed. Many of us were probably misinformed in some way or some shape or some fashion early in life. And we were told, you know, hey, this is true, this is not true. We were told that things were true about God that perhaps wasn't true about God. We were told things were true about sin, that maybe it wasn't true about sin. Things were true about the scriptures, but, but maybe it wasn't true about the scriptures. We were told things about other people and certain people that perhaps wasn't true at all. And, and here's what I've observed, and this is just me. Here's what I've observed. I've observed when people are misinformed early in life as children, it is very difficult as they grow into adulthood to separate themselves from that misinformation. Because once our consciences get informed, and sometimes our consciences can get misinformed. When our consciences get misinformed, when our belief system, our worldview gets misinformed, it's very difficult later on in life to divorce that misinformation. It can happen, but oftentimes, tragically, it doesn't. So we can inherit those beliefs, but we can also adopt those beliefs. And we can adopt them for good reasons and for bad reasons. Many of you, you were told things as a child, but you grew up, you investigated it for yourself. There was an investigation, there was consideration, and you read, and you read multiple people. You actually, you know, as a Christian, you read the Bible. Imagine that, you read the Bible, and, and, and you're like, well, that wasn't, that's not in the Bible. And, and then all of a sudden you're like, okay, I, I've, gotta, I've gotta decide what I'm gonna do with this. And so you got new information and sometimes it was better information than what you had received before. And so then you begin to adopt a new belief or what you read, you actually discovered what you were told was indeed true. And so you adopted it fully as your own at that point. But then there are some people who adopt what they believe for the wrong reason. They adopt what they believe so that they can do what they want to do. So they were told once upon a time, you can't do that. And so they know that you're not supposed to do that, but they really want to do that. So in order to be able to do that and not feel as bad about doing that, they have to change what they believe about doing that. If that is clear as mud, say, uh-huh, right? I mean, none of us have never done that, right? None of us have ever changed our belief in the moment to accommodate our behavior. But, but here, here's, here's the thing, and, and, and then we're going to get to the meat of this. Whether you inherited your belief or whether you adopted your belief, if it's a wrong belief, here's what you need to know. 
Wrong belief can be as deadly as unbelief. Wrong belief can be as deadly as unbelief. Somebody says, well, just as long as you believe something. Well, okay, but that's not true. It sounds good, right? It's just not as long as you believe something. What is most important is this, that what you believe is actually true. That's actually right. So wrong belief can be as deadly as unbelief. And this is true whether you inherited it or adopted it. And this is why when Jesus showed up on the pages of history, when Jesus our Savior, when Jesus our Lord, when he showed up onto the pages of history, he was baptized publicly by John, his cousin. We call him John the Baptizer. He goes into the wilderness. He's tempted by the evil one. He comes out from the wilderness and Jesus begins to preach. The first thing that Jesus preached about, the first thing that Jesus began to communicate about was bad belief. The first thing that Jesus sought to do in his first public words, as far as we have a record of, was to correct bad belief. Because this is what Matthew records in his narrative about Jesus. He said, from that time on, Jesus, after his baptism, after his wilderness temptation, he began to preach, and everybody tell me this word. Repent. Rep one more time. Repent. Now, you can't say it as soft as that. I mean, repent's one of those words. Repent! right? That's how we, that's how we were kind of introduced to it earlier in life. You just can't say Jesus began to repent. <laughs> Jesus began to repent. <laughs> Jesus began to repent, right? That's kind of how, that's kind of how we think of the word because it's a real emotionally packed word. And for many of us, the way we were first introduced to that word and the way that word has been reinforced to us throughout most of our lives, it's really been hijacked from its original meaning. We think of repent as being this emotional thing. I'm gonna cry, I'm gonna feel bad about something I've done. Well, feeling bad about something you've done is feeling bad about something you've done. It's not necessarily what the word repent means. Sure, you can be sorrowful about it. Sure, it can break your heart, but that does not necessarily represent what the word repent means. Repent is not an emotional word. It is actually a cerebral, intellectual word. It is a thinking word. When Jesus showed up and Jesus first began to preach, here's what Jesus invited people to do, to change their mind. He says, I want you to change your mind. I want you to begin to think differently. But in the Christian world, we love the feels. We love feeling. We love emotional. And we think it's all about feeling. But you can't feel something until you first think something. That's not how God wired us. That's not how God made us. We don't feel and then think. We think and then we feel. Because we're informed through our brains and our minds. And our whole body responds to this thing that God has placed within us. Our brain, our mind, our soul. And so th this is a thinking word. And Jesus shows up and says, hey, I want you to change what you're thinking. Because some of you have bad belief. And bad belief can be as deadly as unbelief. And so Jesus, he would show up and say, hey, I want you to change your mind about God. Because if you have wrong beliefs about God, that is incredibly consequential. So some of you believe some things that are true about God. You think them to be true about God. They're not true about God at all. Some of you need to think what you think about, change what you think about the scriptures because some of you were told things about the scriptures that are true that are not true and you need to change the way you think about the scriptures. Jesus would say, I want you to change your mind about this thing called sin. And I really want you to understand what it is and where it comes from and how devastating it is. 
because you don't really believe the right things about sin. I want you to change what you think about other people. And so Jesus, the first thing that I find this, I find this interesting. The first thing that Jesus did was he tried to get people to change their thinking. He didn't show up to get us to feel something. He didn't show up to provide an experience. Though he would provide experiences and though he would impart feelings. He showed up and the very thing that he did from the beginning was he invited people to change the way they thought. Because he believed that beliefs must be aligned with truth. Because beliefs that are not aligned with truth, they are not good belief. They are unhealthy. They will undermine you, your future, and the people that you love. And so Jesus showed up and he said, I want you to leave old dispositions. I want you to leave old opinions. And you know what? That's difficult to do. If you believe wrong things that you've thought all of your life is true, but it's not true, do you know how difficult it is to leave that behind? That's why Jesus said, hey, this is an important thing. I want to invite you to change your thinking where your thinking may need to be changed because Jesus knew that our life was ultimately shaped by what we believe about God, about himself, about sin, about scripture, about one another, about ourselves. Because Jesus knew theoretical belief eventually becomes actual behavior. Theoretical belief actually becomes, you know, in time, actual behavior. Whatever you believe in time will become your behavior. In other words, what is theological, it always becomes practical. And what is practical is ultimately always theological. That, that those two things are connected. The reason people behave the way they behave, the reason I behave the way that I behave, the reason you behave the way that you behave is because of what you ultimately believe. So Jesus understood that why we do what we do is connected to what we believe. And so some people say, you know, I'm just not into theology. I don't think theology is important. I don't think, you know, you know, we should be busy, you know, worried about theology. And Jesus would say, uh, <clears throat> point of order. I think you should care. Because your theology is what you believe. It is what you believe about God, most importantly. It's what you believe about his son, Jesus. It's what you believe about his spirit. It is what you believe about his word. It's what you believe about his plan. It's what you believe about his will. It's what you believe about your responsibility while here on this earth. It is incredibly consequential. And the stakes are high. We should care about this. Now, I'll be the first to admit, some beliefs are more consequential than others but all beliefs are consequential. They're all consequential because they have the power to keep us from the life that Jesus came to offer. I've come that you may have life and have it to the full. That's why when we read the New Testament, when we read the New Testament, so much of the New Testament is about the importance of truth. Now think about this, all right? So much of the New Testament is, is all about the importance of truth. And so all throughout the New Testament, the writers would say, don't be carried away from truth. Don't drift away from truth. Don't be deceived from truth. Stay connected to, stay anchored to, keep your hands on the truth. Because to get away from the truth is to ultimately get away from Jesus because Jesus said, I am the truth. I am the embodiment of truth. And so when you take hold of truth, you take hold of Jesus. When you step towards what is true, you step towards what is Jesus. And when you drift from what is true, ultimately you are drifting and I am drifting away from Jesus. Jesus. So this is, this is a big deal. This is a big deal. So Paul, 
Uh, a person who repented changed his mind about Jesus. He thought that Jesus was a renegade teacher who got crucified and buried until he met Jesus very much alive and well after his resurrection on the way to Damascus. And all of a sudden, Paul said, I need to rethink this. And so he changed his mind about Jesus. And when he changed his mind about Jesus, it changed everything about Paul's life. Paul, who changed his mind about Jesus and it changed the rest of his life, he was very much concerned about truth. So he wrote to a young preacher named Timothy. This young preacher was kind of like his mentee, his protege, you know, the person that he had been investing in. And Timothy was a pastor in a city called Ephesus, a very pagan city, a city that was a melting pot for different beliefs and for a lot of pagan behavior. So not a real easy place to pastor. So Timothy, young guy, He's over there in Ephesus and Paul is in prison in Rome and Paul picks up his pen. He's concerned about this. He's thinking about this whole truth thing. He's thinking about how important it is and how beliefs are consequential and how we need to make sure we keep ourselves connected to the truth. He writes Timothy a letter and he's thinking about how Timothy actually believes right, that Timothy's got healthy beliefs. And so Paul is gonna write and encourage him about his own beliefs, but he's gonna say some things that we all need to just lean in and listen in on ourselves. And here's what Paul wrote to Timothy. He says, but as for you, Timothy, continue, continue in what you have learned, okay? Timothy, I want you to think about what you've been told, what you have inherited, the teaching that has been brought to you. I want you to think about what you have learned and I want you to become convinced of that because you know from whom You've learned it. Now he says, Timothy, I want you to think about what you've been told and I want you to think about who told you. You were told by someone you loved and trusted what to believe. Your grandmother and your mother, Eunice and Lois. They're great people, godly women. They know the scriptures. He says, I want you to think about what you've been told and I want you to think about who told you. And so if you're thinking, you're thinking, well, didn't you just say a few moments ago that just because it's someone we love and trust, it doesn't necessarily make it right. And it seems like Paul is celebrating the fact that Timothy just inherited what his mother and grandmother had told him. Well, he is to a point, but what Paul says next is really the point of what Paul is saying. He says, I want you to think about what you've been told and who told you. And I want you to think about how from infancy or from early childhood, you have known the Holy Scriptures, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. He says, I want you to think about what you've been told. I want you to think about who told you. But most importantly, Timothy, I want you to understand that what you were told by the people that you loved was actually from the scriptures. And that's what makes it believable. That's what makes it true. It's not that granny said it. It's not that mama said it. It's that God said it. And so when he's talking about the Holy Scriptures in this particular context, Paul's talking about the Old Testament because the New Testament is still being written. He's talking about the Old Testament. He says, you know what, Timothy? From the time that you were young, your mother and your grandmother, they took the Scriptures. They were students of the Scriptures. And ladies, just FYI, this is a tremendous nod in the direction of female leadership in the family. Because here is Timothy being taught by women who knew the scriptures. They were literate, they were educated in the scriptures, and they were communicating it to their children. And so he nods in the direction of these ladies to say, good job, Eunice and Lois. Timothy, pay attention to what they told you, but more than anything else, understand that why it's important. It's because it came from the scriptures. 
It wasn't misinformation or, you know, just opinions that they had picked up along the way. No, you were taught the scriptures. And then Paul goes on. He says, and all scripture, all scripture, all Old Testament scripture he's talking about, all scripture is God-breathed. And it is useful for teaching, for rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness. He says, Timothy, listen, you know the truth. And let me tell you why you know the truth. You know the truth because it's from the scriptures. And the scriptures are from God. They're God-breathed. And this is, this is incredible. The language of this is beautiful, but th- th- you're like, this is elementary. No, we need to be reminded of this in our culture more than ever. This is from God. He says, the scriptures are from God. They're God-breathed. He says, and they're profitable. They're advantageous for correcting, to show you what's right, for rebuking, to show you what's wrong, for training in righteousness, how to stay right, for correction, how to get right, right? He, he says, listen, the, the scriptures are incredibly beneficial to you. They will show you what's right, what's wrong, how to get right, and how to stay right. Is there anything else you really need? What's right, what's wrong, how to get right, how to stay right. Yeah, that pretty much covers it. And he says, that's what the scriptures will do. Because ultimately, the Old Testament scriptures we know because of Jesus and other New Testament writers, the Old Testament's purpose ultimately pointed us to Jesus. And Jesus is the embodiment of everything that is true. And if we want to know whether it's true or not, we got to get to know Jesus. But the New Testament's being written, but Paul says the Old Testament is still sufficient to teach you what's right, what's wrong, how to get right, how to stay right. Now, Paul believed this. Peter believed this. Right? Peter was Jesus' right-hand guy. He was the leader of the early church in Acts. And here's what, here's what Peter said about the scriptures. He says, prophets, though human, spoke, everybody say that, from God. From God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. Now, I'm just saying, if our scriptures, whether they're electronic, whether they're written, whether they're hardback or leather bound, if the scriptures that we have today are from God. That reminds me that the ultimate authority in all the universe is God. That God is the ultimate authority. And if his word is from him, then his authority flows through the words that he has spoken. So if the words that we have in the scripture are from God, then those words have authority and we have responsibility to pay attention to them. We have a responsibility that what we believe comes from the authorized version. And I'm not talking about the 1611. I'm talking about the authorized version, which is God's version, God's word. And so this is a really big deal because if we have a word from the Lord, the implications are staggering. If Jesus is the embodiment of truth, And the scriptures point to him. And Jesus said, I am the full representation of God. That when you've seen me, you've seen the Father. The implications are staggering. Now, Christians, most Christians I've ever met, they say, I believe it. I believe it. I believe it's the word of God. I believe it's the word of God. Have you read it? No. (laughs) But you believe it. Oh, Genesis to maps. I believe it all but you don't read it. That's kind of where we are. Who, who believes something without reading it? Children. Most of us say, I would believe every word of it. Have you read every word of it? Do any of the words bother you? Do you have questions about any of it? 
I don't question anything. Well, you haven't read it. <laughs> you haven't read Leviticus. You haven't read. Uh, got about five books you probably should read. You have some big old questions, right? But, but we have these ideas and they're unchallenged and we've not thought them through. But yet we have very refined and thought out beliefs based on what? Information. Someone told us, heard it on a podcast, preacher we loved. We read a book but it wasn't the book. And here's where many of us have been in our lives and this is where a lot of the world is today. We tend to side with opinions rather than with truth. We often do that. And Paul was very concerned about this. That's the reason he goes on to say to Timothy, for the time will come, Timothy, just get ready, brother, buckle up. For the time will come when people will not put up a sound doctrine. They, they will not want to know what is good and what is bad. They won't want to know what's right and what is wrong. They, they won't be interested in what is a healthy belief system. They will not put up a sound doctrine. Instead, to suit their own desires, to suit their own agenda, to suit their own will, to build their own kingdom, be it sandcastles or not, to suit their own desires. They will gather around them a great number of teachers to say what their itching ears want to hear. They will reject what is healthy and embrace something that makes them feel good. They'll create a designer God, a God that agrees with me. Isn't that interesting how it works? That God happens on the really important things to agree with what we think. I was thinking the other day, and here's what I think, and I'll tell you what, I believe God thinks the same thing. Well, is that right? Yeah. Isn't it amazing how God tends to agree with us? Because we have created God in our own image. Rather than understanding that we are the ones created in the image of God, that we have created a God in our own image so that God will reflect what ultimately we believe about whatever it is that we want to believe in the moment that allows us to do what we want to do, say what we want to say, go where we want to go. And I think Paul, as an Old Testament scholar, he, he might have been thinking about a day gone by in Israel. When Israel, they were doing what they wanted to do. They didn't want to be told that they were wrong. They wanted to believe that what they were doing and how they were living was okay and that it was inconsequential. And you know, when you want to believe that, you can always find people to agree with you. And in the Old Testament, there were actually prophets. And this is what Jeremiah said. Jeremiah said, they dressed the wound of my people as though it were not serious. And it's actually fatal. But they're saying, it's not serious. This is not a big deal. This is not bad. Peace, peace, they say, when there is no peace. Jeremiah said, there's these guys out there saying, it's gonna be okay. But war's on the way, judgment's on the way. And Jeremiah says, are they ashamed of their detestable conduct? No, they have no shame at all. They don't even know how to blush because they believe wrong and they've got people around them to tell them that even though they're believing wrong, that they're still believing right. So they will fall among the fallen and they will be brought down when I punish them, says the Lord. Jeremiah says, do not listen to what the prophets are prophesying to you. They will fill you with false hopes. They speak visions from their own minds, not from the mouth of the Lord. They keep saying to all of those who despise me, the Lord says, you will have peace. Well, the Lord wasn't saying that. And to those who follow stubbornness of their hearts, they say, no harm will come to you. Go ahead, believe what you wanna believe. Do what you wanna do. In the end, you're gonna be okay. That is a message that still permeates culture today. And this was 700 years or so before Jesus showed up. Five, really five to six hundred years before Jesus showed up on the planet. 
And what was true then is true now. And I think Paul was afraid that, you know what? There's nothing new under the sun. And the way Israel was in ancient days could be the way that Jesus' followers will be in these current days. Because Paul understood that we are all drawn to beliefs that excuse our behavior. When you treated someone wrong, you excused it away because you chose to believe something. When you decided, hey, I'm gonna do that and say yes to that, you had a belief that gave you a pass that excused it. And Paul was concerned about this and he says, they will turn their ears away from the truth and turn aside to myths. They will turn away from the truth. And whenever you turn away from the truth, there is a price to pay. A no consequence theology always has consequences. In Jeremiah's day, they wanted a no consequence theology. Say what you want to say, do what you want to do, believe what you want to do, do whatever you want to do with whomever you want to do it as often as you want to do it. Because in the end, you're okay. We're all good. We're all God's children. God loves us. You're okay. Keep doing what you're doing. And Paul was afraid that we would embrace a similar message for not only ourselves personally, but for, again, the world collectively. And a no consequence theology always has consequences because beliefs are very much consequential. And our founder, our savior, our Lord, he reminded us of this. Jesus told a parable and here's what he said. He said, therefore, everyone who hears these words of mine and puts them into practice is like a wise man who built his house on the rock. The rains came down, the streams rose and the winds blew and beat against that house. Yet it did not fall because it had its foundation on the rock. But everyone who hears these words of mine and does not put them into practice is like the foolish man who built his house on the sand. The rain came down, the streams rose and the winds blew and beat against that house and it fell with a great crash. And the difference between the two was ultimately what they believed. One believed that there would be no consequences for what they did and how they lived. And the consequences were grave. The other believed what Jesus had said, that beliefs are consequential. So he built his house on the rock. And the rock, of course, is Jesus. And Jesus is truth. And the point being that yes, building on the beach, exclusive, expensive, beautiful, gorgeous, fun, and exciting. Building back on a rock, not as beautiful, not as enticing. And as we read through the scriptures over this series, some of this may feel a bit incarcerating, but in the end, we'll discover that it's actually liberating. Sometimes it may feel restrictive, but in the end we'll discover that it's incredibly protective. Because when our life is built on what is true, our faith will not collapse under the weight of real life. 
we will not have built sandcastles of faith. We will have built fortresses of faith that withstand the pressures and the rigors of real life. Father, in Jesus' name, would you speak to our hearts? Would you remind us that belief is important? Would you help us to to return back to what is true, to either reinforce the truth that we already believe or Father, that we would return to truth to reevaluate perhaps some things that we believe that aren't true at all. God, help us to build our lives on what is true so that when life comes our way and the difficult seasons and the rain and the wind and the waves come against us, that in the end, our faith will stay strong because it's been anchored to truth the entire way. In Jesus' name.